Hello, folks. Welcome back to another edition of Third Down Gamble, the CFL betting podcast. I'm your host, Kyle McMahon, and it's great to be back for what I hope will be another exciting week of Canadian football. As always, we'll have a look back at what transpired in Week 7 and get you ready for all four games that will comprise Week 8 of the schedule. We'll also dabble a little in the futures market to see what's all changed since the start of the season. Spoiler alert, a lot has changed. Before we get to that, I'll remind you that you can hit me up on Twitter anytime by following at KDrive88, that's K-D-R-I-V-E-88, or check out FirstLinePicks.com for quick previews of most CFL games, as well as some other betting content, and feel free to continue submitting your questions, comments, and feedback. Okay, if I could sum up week 7 in a single word, turnovers would be the obvious choice. Turnovers can often be the great equalizer out there on the field, which is great from an excitement perspective. Unfortunately, it's a little less exciting from a handicapping angle, and there's nothing quite like a fumble on the one-yard line to leave coaches along with betters pulling their hair out. Calgary Ottawa on Thursday night was a shining example of this, and for 59 minutes it looked like the Red Blacks were going to steal a win on the back of a Richie Sindani fumble as he was falling into the Ottawa end zone. But alas, a rather stunning coaching move that we will obviously re-examine ended up letting Calgary walk out of there with an unlikely win, albeit one they certainly deserved based on their play. If you managed to sift through all the turnovers we witnessed, I think this game pretty much went according to plan. Calgary finally got rolling on offense for the first time in three weeks, picking on that injury-plagued Ottawa secondary through the air for most of the night. That offense had been sputtering along at well below a 50% success rate, besides the big win over Saskatchewan, but they managed to top the 60% mark in this one, aided by 19 pass plays that went for at least 10 yards. They looked good along the ground as well, at least in the first half before Kadeem Carey left the game with an injury. They didn't shelve the run in the second half like we've seen fairly often, but Terry Williams just doesn't quite have the playmaking ability out of the backfield that Carey has, and and that was definitely a tough loss personnel-wise. Ottawa managed to be marginally better on offense in this game than they were against Winnipeg, basically on the strength of a single drive in the fourth quarter in this one. But overall, it was another really poor night for Jonathan Jennings and the rest of that unit. Jennings took a lot of heat on the broadcast and from the fans in the stands who weren't shy about voicing their displeasure, and some of that was certainly deserved, but make no mistake, the ineptitude was a team effort. Receiver R.J. Harris was out injured again, and and you're dealing with a group of receivers that isn't scaring anyone when everyone is healthy, much less when the number one guy is out. Brad Sinopoli was able to find a bit of space and hauled in what was really Ottawa's only significant offensive play of the game in the form of a 23-yard touchdown pass, but as I've mentioned a few times by now, there just isn't enough talent out there on the field for that offense right now. I thought Winston October called a pretty decent game considering what he was working with, and his commitment to the run with John Crockett managed to limit the damage enough that Ottawa hung around and of course nearly won. But even with a high volume of rushing plays, Ottawa still got murdered in time of possession. So how the heck did Ottawa end up covering this number in such a one-sided game? Timely turnovers, timely Stampeders penalties, and a defense that managed to bend repeatedly but came up with multiple red zone stops. I've talked for weeks about Calgary managing to come up with more points on the scoreboard than their offensive performance warranted, but these things do eventually even themselves out, and unfortunately for Stampeders backers, which was the majority of us with that line moving from minus 5 to minus 7 throughout the week, this was one of those times. Calgary basically doubled their total offensive yards from one week to the next, but settled for five field goals as their output in this one. 
But of course, there were two other very important points that came Calgary's way towards the end of the fourth quarter, those coming via a conceded safety that garnered plenty of attention. In case you missed it, Rick Campbell elected to give up the deuce rather than punt the ball from his end zone, and this reduced the Red Blacks' lead from four points to two points with around a minute remaining. I don't like coaches giving up safeties at the best of times. The day they moved the post-safety kickoff from the 35-yard line to the 20 should have been the day the conceded safety went extinct outside of very specific circumstances. To start with, you're not actually gaining a ton of field position. Ottawa's kickoff coverage team is pretty average in terms of league rankings, with an opponent average starting field position of the 34-yard line. So add 15 to that since you're kicking from the 20 instead of the 35, and odds are Calgary was going to start around their 45 or 50-yard line. No surprise, they indeed started at the 50 after a decent return from Terry Williams. Rene Paredes is a very good kicker and a solid bet to hit most kicks under 50, so you've put yourself in a position where your defense really only has 15 yards worth of breathing room, and even then, that still would have left Calgary close enough to at least attempt a field goal. Calgary ended up moving 36 yards on that final drive, getting Paredes into chip shot range, and he made no mistake to give the Stamps the one-point victory. So what if Campbell had elected to punt the ball instead? Well, Ottawa actually has the best punting net average in the league, at just a shade under 40 yards. They were on their six-yard line, so do the math, and chances are Calgary scrimmages at the Ottawa 45 in this scenario. So even completely ignoring the situation on the scoreboard, you're only talking a 15 or 20 yard field position gain on average by giving up the safety, nowhere near worth the cost of surrendering two points. But what makes this call especially ridiculous is that Calgary went from needing a touchdown to only needing a field goal. So he actually cut the yards to gain virtually in half if you assume an average punt return. 40 yards for a touchdown or 20 yards for a field goal. There's no decision to be made. There is nothing to be gained by giving up a safety in that situation, and everything to lose. I won't say it's the absolute worst call I've ever seen, but it's on a pretty short list. But hey, I suppose it wouldn't officially be a CFL season without a coaching blunder that will live in infamy on top 10 lists for years to come. The second game of the Thursday doubleheader was somewhat less dramatic, as the men in double blue failed to score a single point against an Eskimos team that bounced back from their loss in Montreal in a big way. Things are a mess in Toronto right now, and they're a mess at the most important position. But the ferocity that this Edmonton defense is showing right now is really on another level. This was an Argos team that had passed for over 700 yards in their two previous games, and that was against Winnipeg and Calgary defenses. That number is inflated by some garbage time against the Bombers, but still, seeing McLeod Bethel-Thompson go out there and complete just six passes in three quarters isn't something that I was expecting, even against this defense. He looked like a deer in the headlights out there against that Edmonton Blitz, which continues to cut through opponent O-lines like a hot knife through butter. And that wasn't just on pass plays either. The penetration the defensive line was getting on straight-ahead run plays was unbelievable. If there was any doubt left regarding this defense, I think it has to be gone by now, and they grade out at number one in the league at the moment, as they have for pretty much the whole year. For their part, Toronto's defense at least managed to compete, even if there wasn't anything they could do about the end result. Edmonton got their offense back on track, but they had to work for it, and a couple fumbles deep in Argonaut territory at least kept the game within reach until the latter stages of the third quarter. Eskimo receivers were definitely hearing some footsteps out there, so if there's any positives to be found in a 26-0 loss, the team hasn't appeared to have quit on Corey Chamberlain just yet. 
Betting-wise, the under easily cashed for the fourth straight game involving Edmonton, and Eskimo's backers didn't have to sweat too much with all the numbers cashing, though Jimmy Ralph's drop that could have made it a two-score game in the second half might have made your heart skip a beat if you were on the minus 13 number that ended up being the highest this line got leading up to kickoff. Winnipeg's five-game winning streak came to an end in Hamilton on Friday night, but naturally, the victory celebration was dampened by the realization that Jeremiah Masoli's knee injury suffered in the first quarter was serious, and it has indeed ended his season. This is another tough pill for the Ticat faithful to swallow, as this continues a pattern of devastating injuries suffered by key players, just when everything seemed to be looking so promising. But it shouldn't be all doom and gloom in Steel Town, as perhaps lost in the story was the superb play of their defense. We knew Winnipeg might be heading towards a letdown game on offense, and I can't say I've ever been surprised by a Matt Nichols turnover, but it's impressive the way they were able to limit Andrew Harris on the ground, especially missing Simone Lawrence. I think Winnipeg definitely hurt their cause by continually looking for the home run plays in the second half, despite never trailing by more than 11 points, but they'd been hitting on the, well, at least a couple of those plays per game coming into this one, so a lot of credit needs to go to the Hamilton defense that never got burned for a play longer than 27 yards. If I was Paul Lapolis and Mike O'Shea on the Bombers' side, I think I would have stuck with the run a little bit longer. Hamilton was getting stops, but Winnipeg passed on 75% of situation neutral snaps, which is significantly higher than their seasonal average of just 56%. Score effects come into play with both those figures, but with the way their own defense was playing and Masoli out, this never had a feel of a game that was out of reach, so I don't think I'd have forced the pass as often as they did on a night where Matt Nichols was not at his best. If you're Orlando Steinauer, I think you're probably okay with what you got out of Dane Evans in relief. Coming into the game unexpectedly for your first real action in the CFL against a strong defense isn't an easy ask. Fortunately, he had a 14-point lead to work with and merely needed to not cough that up. And at the end of the day, it was mission accomplished, even if it wasn't exactly a masterpiece. One thing I liked from Evans was that he looked perfectly confident and in control of the offense back there, and all indications are the Tiger Cats are comfortable with him going forward for the time being. Despite the turnovers that put points on the board, traditional offensive points were at a premium in this game, and after a big first quarter, things settled down, and the under went on to cash quite easily. Likely not a great outcome for the majority of betters, though, as Hamilton goes on to cover the opening number, despite a solid four points worth of closing line movement towards the Bombers. On a week where you had the Argonauts get shut out, it's hard to imagine somebody else could have been worse on offense, but the BC Lions somehow managed to crawl under that bar. Not technically, as they did manage to boot a field goal, but from the broader perspective, this was an all-time bad performance. I'll run through the numbers for the sake of amusement. 77. That's the number of net offensive yards the Lions compiled. 8. That would be how many snaps graded successful for their offense, and to put that in perspective, the scoreless Argonauts at least managed 16 of those. And 66. The number of passing yards for Mike Riley, the highest paid quarterback in the league, as I'm sure you've heard. Even through the first six games as BC struggled their way to just one win, they managed to do enough good things to at least give the impression that a turnaround was possible, but this looks to me like a team whose spirit has now been broken. I thought the defense noticeably sagged after Luchez Purifoy ran that kickoff back for Saskatchewan, even though it was only in the first quarter. Certainly no excuse for that to happen, but again we have a coach foolishly conceding a safety, and you go from 3-0 down to 12-0 down in two plays. And this marked the second week in a row that the BC coverage team completely blows it and the Riders never look back. 
So I get the frustration, but the end result is William Powell proceeding to run you over and you end up with 35 points hung against you. I thought the Riders' game plan was a great example of a team just sticking to what was working instead of trying to change anything, thinking they're staying one step ahead of the other sideline. They weren't even trying to disguise their blitz by the second quarter on what was another very poor night for the BC offensive line, and one-on-one -on -one coverage was perfectly effective against a quarterback that didn't have more than two steamboats on most snaps and didn't have any receivers finding separation anyway. This BC receiving core is heading in the wrong direction and they really look slow out there compared to their opponent. One guy who did not look slow on the field was Cody Fajardo, who once again victimized the Lions' defense with his legs as well as his arm, and what was another example of the Lions coaching staff failing to adjust. I would have thought containment would have been top of mind for Devon Claybrooks and Rich Stubler after last week's game, but far too many times I witnessed BC vacating the slot on second and longs, and when they didn't, poor tackling was often on full display. The Lions did give themselves opportunities for stops and were actually reasonably effective on first downs, but the Riders just couldn't miss with their second down play calling. Really good mix of runs, short passes, and deeper passes from Steve McAdoo, who's been rightly criticized for his play calling in the past. The Riders' receiving core is interesting right now. Last week it was Shaq Evans, this week it was Corey Watson. We've seen Kyron Moore with some big games earlier in the year, and the presently injured Katie Cannon, as well as Naaman Roosevelt, have led the team in receiving at various points this season. So some really good depth on display there, and I have to wonder if somebody like, yeah, say, Marcel Desjardins, GM of the Red Blacks, isn't maybe working the phone and seeing if he can shake one of those guys loose. The lean towards the over ended up being the right side in the end, although you can pretty much thank Ryan Lankford for that, uh, on a night where it appeared that every other member of the BC Lions offense bet on the under themselves. Alright, looking ahead to the upcoming week, we've got another Thursday night doubleheader on tap, and once again it'll feature a pair of East-West matchups. First on deck, it's the no longer unbeaten Blue Bombers of Winnipeg finishing up their two-game Southern Ontario road trip in Toronto against the still winless Argonauts. To the surprise of nobody, the Bombers are overwhelming favourites in this one, opening a minus 14 with an over-under total of 48.5. Yes, the dreaded double-digit spread strikes again, and these big numbers have not been very kind to the public thus far, as by my count, the market has only been correct on two out of seven double-digit spreads that have seen clear movement towards one side. Toronto is finally home after a three-game road trip, and that should at least help in the sense that the players can actually get back into a routine and practice at their own facility. Is that going to be enough against a Winnipeg team that will be coming in focused and looking to rebound from their first loss? Probably not enough to actually win, but if the Argos could get a turnover-free game from whoever they decide to start at quarterback, I'd like their chances of at least covering this number. Easier said than done, though, for a team that has turned it over at an entirely unacceptable rate thus far. We saw Dakota Prukop get a decent amount of reps in the second half last week, and while the results weren't any better, he at least had the look of a guy who might inspire a little bit of confidence, contrasted with McLeod Bethel-Thompson, who just looked overwhelmed out there from the get-go. To his credit, Bethel Thompson owned his poor performance after the game, but I think the clock has to be ticking by now. Corey Chamberlain hasn't made an official announcement as of yet, which is probably an indicator that he'll stick with the incumbent, at least to start with, but I don't think he can afford to have a lot of patience at 0-6. I was definitely in the camp that thought Bethel Thompson would be an upgrade on what James Franklin had been giving them, but unfortunately for the Argos, he's not looking like any sort of long-term solution. James Wilder has already been ruled out for Friday, so it'll be Brandon Burks again as the feature running back, and I really hope they show some commitment to the run and give him a chance to do something. 
Toronto has killed themselves by falling behind multiple scores in the first half of football games and trying to play catch-up, but as I've said before, you can still employ a run-based offense while trailing in the CFL, and, and I think some of these coaches are really too quick to panic and end up trying to get themselves back into games with huge plays. The clock really isn't the enemy that it's made out to be, and there's no need for it to dictate strategy until you're into the fourth quarter. For the Bombers, I think this is pretty simple, and that's get back into your comfort zone. Feed Andrew Harris, control the ball, eliminate mistakes. I don't see this defense, which had another great game against Hamilton despite losing, suddenly crumbling against the Argonauts in their current state. So as long as the offense and special teams don't fumble the game away like they did against Hamilton, there shouldn't be a whole lot to worry about. I thought the Bombers fell into the trap I described above of trying to pass their way back into a game that they only trailed by a touchdown and a field goal last week. And as useful as the explosive plays have been for them, that's an offense that probably doesn't need to be gambling on those in a situation where 20 points might be enough to win this game. Special teams have been quite eventful for the Bombers recently, both good and bad. Charles Nelson is probably going to be on the shelf injured for a few weeks yet, which is good news for Toronto considering they got torched repeatedly in the previous meeting between these two teams. The Bombers have been mostly going with newcomer Kenneth Walker on returns since Nelson went down, and he's shown some explosiveness, but after a really costly fumble against Hamilton, it was lucky Whitehead the rest of the way for Mike O'Shea, so it's not entirely clear which route he's planning on heading down in this game. This number has stayed pretty well flat at 14 up until this point, as is the 48.5 total, and I'm not expecting a lot of movement on either of these numbers, which seem pretty much on the mark. I would certainly like to be able to take two full touchdowns for an Argos team that actually had a pretty strong effort in Calgary two weeks ago in a game they probably could have won. But there's two positions that just can't be trusted right now, and when those two positions are quarterback and coaching, there's just no way to justify backing a team that has now been blown out in four of their six games. Reluctance to go the other way and stake the Bombers comes down in large part to the CFL's propensity, whether it's by conscious design or not, for helping a down-and-out home team stay in touch with a favorable call or two. Having this really murky new procedure where the command center can call down to the officials on the field and overturn calls, which seems to be happening largely at random, doesn't sit particularly well with me. It doesn't always follow the script, but it's hard not to think an 0-6 team fighting to stay relevant in a crowded sports market might get the benefit of the doubt on a couple calls on Friday. And when you're dealing with a spread this big, that's a possibility that I don't think you can totally discount. The total is low enough that a special team's score from Winnipeg, or Toronto for that matter, would go a long way towards getting the over. If you're comfortable banking on that happening, over is probably the play here. My word of caution would be that last week continued the trend of games involving the defenses of Winnipeg, Edmonton, Calgary, or Hamilton landing well under due to the way those units have shut down offenses. We will naturally travel west for the second leg of the doubleheader, which will see Dane Evans's Hamilton Tiger Cats visiting the surging Rough Riders in Regina. I'll insert the obligatory complaint about the CFL somehow managing to have two games overlap, but at least we now live in the era of PVRs and 5TSN channels to get around that. The Riders opened as slight minus one and a half favorites, and that number has moved to a full field goal in pretty short order. The total sits at 50 and a half in this one. I'm looking forward to this game because I think it's going to tell us a lot about both teams. Hamilton is going to have Dane Evans making his first career start, and it's possible we'll know by the end of the game if he's capable of providing the level of play needed to keep the Tiger Cats in the driver's seat of the CFL Eastern Division going forward. Word out of practice on Tuesday was that Brandon Banks is a little nicked up, and is not certain to play on Thursday. 
Not having Banks' game-breaking abilities in a game where your backup is trying to get his feet wet would be a big blow to this offense, so that's definitely an injury to keep close tabs on. The good news for the Tiger Cats is that despite the attention their offense tends to get, it has actually been their defense that was largely responsible for three of their five wins so far. Offensive coordinator Tommy Condell hasn't been shy about airing it out, and with the personnel he had, that was working out reasonably well. But I think we probably see an adjustment to a more possession-based offense that tries to keep turnovers at a minimum and puts their defense in position to succeed by maintaining field position. Saskatchewan's defensive line has been really aggressive so far, and it worked well against the beleaguered BC offensive line. But the Ticats, by contrast, are very strong in the trenches, and I don't think the Riders will be able to pin their ears back as often in this game without opening themselves up in the middle of the field. I think Malik Irons has done a decent enough job as the starting running back in place of the injured Sean Thomas Erlington. But I'd like to see Anthony Coombs get a few more looks, specifically on those screenplays designed to exploit heavy blitzes. Ultimately, if Hamilton can get a similar level of production out of Evans that Calgary's been getting out of Nick Arbuckle, that should be sufficient to continue winning more often than they lose. This defensive unit has been extremely consistent against the pass all year, grading out at between 53 and 60% success rate in all six of their games thus far, which includes a very strong effort in the season opener against the Saskatchewan team. Of course, that game did see Cody Fajardo unexpectedly thrust into action early on. We're probably getting to the point in the season where results from the first week or two of the year don't carry that much weight, but it's still worth acknowledging that Fajardo eventually got the hook in that first meeting after three quarters of ineffective play. When it comes to Fajardo and the Saskatchewan Rough Riders as a whole, this game should provide a more accurate picture of where they really stand in the CFL pecking order. We've seen them blow the doors off Toronto and BC, and we've seen them get stifled against Hamilton and blown out at home by Calgary, so there really hasn't been much middle ground. Probably the biggest question mark still surrounding Fajardo would be his ability to produce results against defenses that are able to pressure him. BC's defensive front did a flat-out terrible job on Saturday, getting dominated by a banged-up Riders offensive line. The credit for that has to go both ways, of course, but to my eye, the compete level just wasn't there for the Lions, and if you have a situation along the line where one side is more invested than the other, that side is going to win every time regardless of the personnel on the field. Ted Laurent and Dylan Wynn have been doing a really good job on the interior of that Hamilton defensive line. And of course, you've got Jagarrett Davis coming in off the edge, so this is going to be a good pressure test for the Riders' O-line. On the flip side, Hamilton's linebackers are going to have to be much more aware of Fajardo as a potential run threat than they needed to be against the generally stationary Matt Nichols last week. Simone Lawrence will be serving Game 2 of his suspension, fittingly sitting out a game against the same Riders team whose quarterback he knocked out on the first drive of the season. That's a guy they'd love to have in there against a dual-threat quarterback, but I thought Nick Shorthill's play in place of Lawrence was pretty solid against Winnipeg, and the Bombers weren't too shy about trying to attack his area of the field. I think BC got caught maybe not really respecting Fajardo's willingness to tuck the ball and run it himself, but after two straight games of that, the element of surprise should no longer be in play. Perhaps the biggest question will be what Hamilton is able to do to limit William Powell along the ground. They're coming off a game where they did a great job against Andrew Harris, but they've shown vulnerability against the run at times this season. In the first game between these teams, the Riders ran early and often and ended up grading out at a 70% success rate rushing the ball. If they're able to continue that success, they're going to come out ahead in the field position battle, which I think will play a pretty significant role in a game that may not have too many touchdowns getting scored. Powell, and another north-south runner in the form of William Stanback, 
are two guys that have caused the problems for Hamilton this year, and I'd look for them to maybe cheat an extra body from the secondary up closer to the line of scrimmage to help plug those gaps in the middle. This is a game where I was initially quite attracted to Hamilton getting points given the strength of their defense and the fact that the Riders have yet to prove themselves against any serious opposition, but Banks potentially being sidelined is something that's hard to look past. I like what Braylon Addison has brought to this receiving core, but Luke Tasker and Mike Jones have been pretty much MIA this year, and if Saskatchewan's secondary doesn't have to concern themselves with Banks, it's going to be very tough for Hamilton to pass effectively. This line has been pretty stable at minus 3 for the last day or so, but I'd have to think Banks getting ruled out, if there is indeed an official announcement sometime before kickoff, probably spurs on some more action towards the Rough Riders side of this. Total-wise, this line has moved down ever so slightly, but I think even at 49.5 or 49 even, the under still looks like the more attractive play here. This is another one of those games where I don't see the offenses doing enough damage to crack 50 points on their own, and it's going to come down to the return game. The Riders got burned for two touchdowns by Ryan Lankford last week, which is quite concerning to me considering he was probably a guy who was playing for his job after struggling to hold on to the ball, first in Ottawa, who cut him three weeks ago, and not showing much against the Riders in the first set of the back-to-back. Frankie Williams has done a great job so far this year for Hamilton, and he's a clear threat to take one the distance if the Riders' coverage team can't get things figured out. Despite that possibility, I still think a defensive struggle is the most likely course of events in this game, and at a minimum I'd be avoiding the over, even if you're not quite willing to sweat a sub-50 under. And make me no mistake, those usually are sweats in this league until the final whistle blows. A collision between two teams trending in opposite directions will take place on Friday night in Montreal, with the hometown Alouettes riding a three-game winning streak and coming off a bye week, while the visiting Red Blacks will try to avoid their fifth consecutive loss. The Alouettes find themselves favored in a game for the first time this season, and they are no small favorite, checking in at minus 7.5 chalk. With a total at 53, this number surprisingly represents the highest number on the board, as the books seem to have finally embraced the great defensive efforts we've seen out of several teams in recent weeks. Tons of momentum for the resurgent Alouettes coming into this game, though they will be coming off their second bye week of the season, so we'll see if there's any early timing hiccups. But after two consecutive weeks of the team coming off a bye, looking strong early on, I think we can safely say we're far enough into the season that these bye weeks are becoming beneficial, rather than the hindrance they appeared to be in the early going. For Montreal, I would expect a return to the run game that proved to be highly effective in the first meeting between these two clubs, which was a convincing Montreal victory. The Owls have consistently elected to feed William Stanback on first downs throughout their three-game winning streak, and the production he's been able to generate has been huge in opening up options in the passing game for Vernon Adams. For their part, the Red Blacks' defensive front has probably been the strength of their defense this year, although considering their pass coverage has been flat-out terrible, that's not exactly high praise. Since taking over for Antonio Pipkin in the season opener, Adams has followed a pretty similar path as Cody Fajardo has, getting it done with both his legs and his arm. Where he's really shone is his escapability in the pocket and ability to make off-balance passes. I still think Montreal's offensive line is having issues in pass protection, and sending Tyler Johnstone to the six-game injured list this week definitely wasn't something they needed. Ottawa hasn't brought a lot of pressure on the Blitz so far this season, but I'd have to think they might just dial up the heat a little to try to help out a secondary that can't cover a tackling dummy at the moment. The steady upward trend of Montreal's defense under coordinator Bob Slowick has been very interesting to watch. This was a guy that came up with Mike Sherman, who is of course long gone, but by all accounts he brought a completely different attitude up to Canada with him. 
Sherman's commitment to learning the ins and outs of the Canadian game after a lifetime of coaching in the States was non-existent by all accounts, but that hasn't been the case with Slowick. They made a point of mentioning on the broadcast that he's spent many hours of what I guess you could call his own time, if there is such a thing for a football coach, studying Canadian football and sitting down with the newly retired lineman Luke Brodeur-Jordan to figure out everything he can about football north of the border, and it's clearly paying dividends. And that just goes to show the impact the coaching can have on this game. Made obvious on a week where you had Rick Campbell, who has presumably been immersed in Canadian football since the time he could walk, make a completely flabbergasting decision to cost his team a win. Campbell is hopeful that starting quarterback Dominique Davis is going to return to the lineup this week, and based on what he was willing to say to the media, I think it's quite likely that he will indeed be the man under center in this one. It's an upgrade at a key position, obviously, and the biggest difference between him and Jonathan Jennings is the touch that Davis is able to put on his deep balls, and that's going to be extremely important against a ball-hawking Montreal backfield. The Red Blacks had not been shy about trying to stretch the field before Davis went down, although I'm not sure how aggressive I'd be against a Montreal secondary that is quickly rounding into an elite unit, especially with receiver RJ Harris still out injured. If you're going to make gains against the Alouette defense, the ground game is probably your best bet. There's no indication yet that Moses Madu is coming off the one game, so John Crockett will presumably be the man again in the Ottawa backfield. He had the one fumble against the Stampeders, but overall, he put in another very solid effort, and the Red Blacks would be wise to ride him as much as they can. I don't know if Winston October needs to go to the extreme of calling an offense that almost looked like they were playing not to lose the game at times last week, but the more time they're able to keep that tattered defense off the field, the better their chances are of coming up with a win. At 7.5 points, you're definitely being asked to have some trust that Adams and the Owls aren't just a flash in the pan, but I think they've earned that trust. A 3-2 and two record with four of those games coming against Hamilton and Edmonton teams that are combined 7-1 and one in their non-Montreal games is not something that can just be chalked up to a lucky hot streak. Montreal has definitely got the better of the bounces and the close calls over the last three games, but this has been by no means a smoke and mirrors situation that is due to fizzle out. Until Ottawa gets healthy again on defense and gets a bona fide playmaker back into their receiving core, it's difficult to inspect them to compete in a lot of games. Overall, I think this coaching staff, brutal call last game notwithstanding, is squeezing what they can out of a talent bear roster, but the scheming can only take you so far. We've seen Davis make some great plays so far this year, but unless he has another night like he did against the Riders back in week two where everything he did seemed to work, I don't see Ottawa being particularly competitive in this football game. As for how this factors into how we approach the total, once again I think I've got to lean pretty firmly towards the under. Ottawa has scored 50 points total in their past four games, and that includes a fumble return touchdown. Those are just plain brutal offensive numbers, and it's not a case where they've moved the ball and had untimely turnovers taking a bunch of points off the board. I think seeing this total come in at 53 is more an indicator that Montreal's ability to put up 30-plus points is being respected here, as opposed to any expectation of the Red Blacks suddenly getting things sorted out on offense. If any side of the ball is going to have a letdown on the Montreal side, it's probably going to be the offense simply due to the nature of how this game works. Turnover and special teams weirdness has played a role so far, and it always will, but I think you have to be going with the under in games involving Ottawa until they give us a reason not to. The first installment of the Battle of Alberta caps off the week with a Saturday night showdown in Calgary between the Stampeders and rival Eskimos. If you think this game is too close to call, the books agree with you, as this has been made a pick'em, 
with one point available on either side if you do some line shopping. With those defenses on the field, the sub-50 total was not unexpected, and this one comes in at 48. I can't remember the last time Edmonton would have been favored to win a game in Calgary, even if it's only by a point, but that defense pitching a shutout, even if it was against the hapless Argonauts, was definitely something that got people taking notice. There's still room for improvement on the offensive side of things, but as I expected, Shaq Cooper added some sizzle to the run game. On the whole, defenses are ahead of offenses right now in this league, and you need a running back who can make the first guy miss, or it's just not going to be effective very often. CJ Gable is still on the one-game injured list. No word yet on whether he'll be activated for Saturday's game, but in spite of coughing up the ball at the goal line last Thursday, I think he's definitely earned a second start, he being Cooper, regardless of Gable's status. I continue to be impressed by the play of Edmonton's offensive line. This is now a line that has been without Sir Vincent Rogers from day one, Matt O'Donnell is on the sixth game, and they just continue to provide excellent protection for Trevor Harris. The play calling has certainly helped them out in this regard as well, but these guys being a complete non-concern through six games has been absolutely huge. The one thing I'd point out is that outside of their game against Winnipeg, they haven't had to deal with particularly strong opponent front sevens yet, so heading into Calgary is probably going to test them more than they have been up until now. If there is one area of weakness on the Stampeders' defense right now, it's in the intermediate passing game. Nobody's been able to connect on anything deep against this secondary, but Calgary hasn't actually been any better than average at defending the intermediate and underneath stuff, and that might play into Edmonton's hands a little bit since those plays have been their bread and butter on offense. That said, Dave Dickinson is no doubt well aware of this, and I expect some adjustments to counter this. Receiver Devaris Daniels' status is still up in the air, and other than Greg Ellingson, who can go up and win jump balls downfield, the Eskimos don't really have anyone that is a big threat to burn a defense deep right now, so I'd anticipate the Stamps go with a little more press coverage to limit opportunities underneath, which is exactly how the Alouettes managed to shut down this, uh, this Edmonton offense. As far as Nick Arbuckle and the Stamps' offense are concerned, this is going to be a new experience facing a defense that is really firing on all cylinders right now. In spite of kicking just five field goals against the Red Blacks, last week was probably the best the Stampeders offense has looked all year, but that obviously comes with the qualifier that it came against a defense that has made a lot of teams look good so far. After having listened to Dave Dickinson's post-practice presser from Tuesday, I'd say it's very doubtful we're going to see Kadeem Carey on the field Saturday, and that's a big loss to a running game that really only found any traction when Carey's been given the ball. I like Terry Williams overall as a return man, first and foremost, and also as somebody who can catch passes out of the backfield. But as a pure rusher, he's probably a little short of starting running back quality, and the offense noticeably sagged last Thursday after Carey had to exit the game late in the first half. Calgary's offensive line has written a pretty similar story to Edmonton's so far. They've dealt with their share of injuries, but overall they've been their usual solid selves in spite of it. Facing six- and seven-man pressure is going to be a different beast, though, and we'll see if they can hold up. The quick passing game hasn't been something the Stamps have put on display very often this year, preferring to look for guys downfield, but it's really hard to get away with running long developing plays against this Eskimos defense right now, so I see this as another area where the Stamps are going to need to make some noticeable adjustments. The number looks to have settled on minus one for Edmonton in most places, and I think maybe we could see it move out to minus two as kickoff nears, but the market looks pretty content to treat this as basically a pick'em. If you're wondering about whether to take a side giving or getting a single point or just hit the money line, there's obviously very little difference in a case like this. If 
5%, that's the number of CFL games decided by a single point over the last decade, with two such games so far this year. So that single point can make or break you the odd time. This is a big spot for the Eskimos as a franchise. They've been on the wrong end of this provincial rivalry for the better part of the last 15 years, really, but definitely the last three years, and this is clearly a statement game for them. I think Jason Moss's biggest task is going to be keeping his players grounded and treating this game the same way as any other game. It's easy to get too amped up and go out there and commit mistakes trying to do too much. The Eskimos have done a pretty good job reducing penalties to an acceptable level compared to where they were at, and it's going to be really important to maintain that composure. By both the numbers and the eye test, this is a game that the Eskimos should be expected to win, provided they don't do things to hurt themselves. This is one of the first matchups in the year where there's a bit of a sample of games against common opponents to draw from, and this puts Edmonton in a comparatively good light. From the Stampeder perspective, I'd be at least mildly concerned that a Toronto team that failed to score a single point last week against this Edmonton team still managed to throw for 350 yards against Calgary two weeks ago in what was a game the Stamps likely lose if not for several unforced Argo turnovers. And if you want to go back a little further, the Lions have had the boots put to them twice by the Eskimos, but they were an onside kick defense away from winning in McMahon Stadium back in week three. These things obviously have limited predictive value in such a fluid game, but they're not completely irrelevant either. The total is now down to 46.5, which I would say is pretty close to the line where you just can't justify going under based on having two competent teams on the field. I think both teams probably find a way to scratch and claw their way to 20 points in this one, probably not much beyond that. But at 46.5, all it takes is one big return or a defensive score to really put you in a tough spot as far as staying under, provided neither offense puts up a complete dud. As promised, we'll do a little bit of digging into the futures market to see if there's anything of value or intrigue on the board as we slide past the one-third mark of the season. First off, do your line shopping if you're at all serious about trying to actually make any money doing this. Obviously, this is mainly for entertainment for most of us, but if you are serious, make sure you've got access to a few different books to give yourself the best numbers and the best prices if you're not already doing so. This holds true across all markets, but especially when it comes to the CFL futures market where large differences in odds are often common. Starting things off with the favored Blue Bombers, I would probably steer clear of them right now. At less than 2-1, to one, there's no value at all that I can see, even with them as early favorites to be hosting the Western Final. Remember, if you're making a futures bet, it needs to be more lucrative than simply betting the money line in the individual division final and rolling that over into another money line bet to win the Grey Cup. This is going to take some projection and back-of-the-napkin math, but right now the plus 175-ish price we're seeing for the Bombers assumes they'd be approximately 3.5 point favorites in both the Western Final and the Grey Cup. Not unreasonable on the surface, but it's way too early to bank on that actually playing out. The same logic can be applied to the Stampeders and Eskimos, who are both sitting at around 4-1. to one. If you chose to back one of those teams right now, and they did end up finishing in first place, your ticket would have some value. So they're a little more attractive, I think, than the Bombers. But that's the only scenario that wouldn't end up with you losing value, compared to simply going with the money line rollover come playoff time. Assuming you don't end up with some bizarre situation where a road team is significantly favored in a non-crossover playoff game, which is un extremely unlikely. With the way Calgary has generally looked so far, combined with Bo Levi Mitchell's injury concern, I'd say it's pretty unlikely they end up in first place, despite being just one game back. 
With the way Edmonton's defense is looking, I could see them threatening Winnipeg for first, especially if they can come away with a win this weekend in Calgary. But the price is still perhaps a little rich. Saskatchewan is interesting, and you can find them up to 7.5 to 1 if you look around. I say interesting because they project to be the fourth place team in the West right now. A ton can change, and it would be short-sighted to think they can't still end up in second or third place. Eh, first place is probably a bit of a reach, but not impossible. But if you've been following this league for the past few years, you've probably noticed that being the fourth place team in the West and getting the Eastern Division crossover playoff spot actually provides a softer path to the Grey Cup than finishing in second or third in your own division does. Right now, Hamilton and Montreal are the clear and obvious favorites to take the top two Eastern spots. And when you, when you consider Jeremiah Masoli is done for the season, it's not outlandish to think the fourth place Western team could end up being more or less on par with these two clubs. Still, though, the math suggests that the payout is not quite large enough for a play to make sense here. Even if you generously assume the crossover team to be listed as a pick'em in the playoffs, they need to win twice and then win the Grey Cup where they would almost certainly be underdogs. Add it all up and you'd be looking at something like a tenfold return on your investment by simply betting them to win individual games in November, significantly more than the sevenfold return on the board right now. To round out the West, the down and out Lions, Grey Cup favorites heading into week one, can now be found at the astonishing price of 175 to 1 to take home Earl Grey's Cup in November. The biggest obstacle facing BC is obviously just getting into the playoffs in the first place, but it's such a ridiculous price, it's worth at least running the numbers. Given that they've already lost the season series against both Edmonton and Saskatchewan, with a loss against Calgary as well, BC is in tough in terms of tiebreaker scenarios. They'll probably need 9 wins to pass any of the teams above them, or 8 at a minimum unless somebody above them completely implodes. Is it totally ridiculous to think they could close on a 7-4 and four run and get themselves to 8 wins and have a chance? It's a long shot obviously, but stranger things have happened. This same franchise started 0-5 in 2011 before ripping off 11 wins in 13 games to win the Western Division and eventually the Grey Cup. Looking at the schedule, the Lions do have the good fortune of facing an injury-plagued Hamilton team twice in the coming weeks, and still have all four of their home games against Eastern opponents remaining. Teams from out East have never fared very well traveling all the way across the country. The hole is too deep and the problems too numerous, but I've probably spent $5 on worse things than this lottery ticket would be. Moving east, the Masoli injury has changed the landscape, but the Ticats are still pretty solid favorites as far as the Eastern Division is concerned, and they're listing at about 5.5 to 1 to win the Grey Cup right now. Hamilton was a team that I thought had the most value coming into the season when they were still available around 7-1 to 1 just before training camp, and I still don't think this is actually all that bad of a ticket to be sitting on, even with Masoli out. Are they still worth it at the current price with Masoli done? Probably not quite, but this number isn't all that bad. They've built themselves some breathing room over the Owls at 5-1, and one, and with, with the current state of affairs in Ottawa and Toronto, it would take a cataclysm for them to fall out of the top two. If Dane Evans can merely be competent, they should still hang on to first place, and their soft upcoming schedule should help as well. I think this price will probably remain pretty stable regardless of what happens on Thursday in Saskatchewan, unless Evans really has an extreme performance, be it good or bad, so you can likely afford to wait another week and see how you feel about Hamilton. Montreal's sudden ascension is actually kind of what prompted a re-examination of futures this week, as I had someone reach out on Twitter wondering if 16-1 to was good value on the Owls just before last week's games took place. 
I would say 16-1 to will always be good value on a team that is projecting towards hosting a playoff game, and the Masoli injury only bolstered that. The Owls are now down to 10 or 11-1 to in most spots. I'd say it's probably a little late to hop on board at that number, as you never want to be buying high, but at the same time, the door is open in the east with the Ticats injury situation. It's crazy to think Montreal could have been had at 50-1 to after the third week of the season. That just shows the way the pendulum swings in this league. Ottawa is sitting around 16-1 to at most shops. There's an 18-1 to on the board. No surprise, this is an easy pass from my perspective. I simply don't see them turning this season around with the personnel they have on hand, and if they end up losing in Montreal this weekend, a game they follow up with a trip to Edmonton next week, you'll probably see this balloon up to 40 or 50 to 1 before too long, at which point maybe you revisit it as a potential lottery ticket investment. That leaves the winless Argonauts, who are in uncharted territory as far as I'm aware, as I have never in my life seen a team in this league listed as 300 to 1 long shots before we've even hit August. The mechanics of the Argonauts managing to make the playoffs at this point probably aren't actually as crazy as these odds imply. In a league where starting quarterbacks are dropping like flies, all it would take is some misfortune befalling Vernon Adams and the Owls to create a scenario where 8 or even 7 wins might be enough to grab second place in the East. If you think back to 2017, the Tiger Cats started a season 0-8 and managed to actually have themselves in realistic playoff contention in October. I don't think Montreal is going to turn into a pumpkin, but nor did I think they were suddenly going to look like a viable playoff team after the way they looked in the first two weeks in the season. Things can change very quickly in the CFL. Toronto has already played four games out west against the four competent western teams, and if you have to lose games, losing road games against good teams from the opposite division hurts you the least. The Argos' next two games are against Winnipeg and Edmonton, and I can't help but wonder what the odds might look like if they lose both of those though it's hard to imagine them getting much worse. With seven games left against divisional opponents, meaning they are still firmly in control of their own destiny, even at 0-6, I can think of worse ideas than tossing cupholder change at the Argos, as unlikely as it is that you're ever going to see your money again. So I guess in conclusion, there's nothing on the futures board right now that I'd be racing to the window to bet on, but if I had to go with something that wasn't a lottery ticket, Montreal and Edmonton might be the direction I looked. The Eskimos have games against Ottawa and Toronto sandwiched between this week in Calgary, and a game at home against Winnipeg at the end of the month. It's not outrageous to suppose they could win three or even all four of those games and put themselves into first place heading into Labor Day. Of course, they could drop two or three of them as well, but there's a reason they call it gambling. With the questions that now surround Hamilton at the quarterback position, Montreal could be a serious threat to come out of the East if they keep playing at the level they've demonstrated over the last three weeks. Although in both these cases, you are going to have to bite the bullet and hope you're not buying stock at the high watermark, if you did cho indeed choose to invest in one of these two teams. Alright, the final order of business to take care of is this week's top pick, and I must say the books have unfortunately come through with what appears to be their strongest effort of the season to date. Probably not a week to be betting the farm on any of these sides or totals. I definitely didn't mind Hamilton getting a field goal, but Banks' uncertain status throws a wrench into that one. So even though they let us down two weeks ago, I'm going to give the Eskimos a second chance to prove their worth as a legitimate Grey Cup threat. I think that defense finds a way to get to Nick Arbuckle and they manage to grind out a close win. Eskimos minus one is this week's best bet.
Thanks again for listening, folks. I believe it's a long weekend in most provinces across the country. So enjoy the football and whatever other activities you may have planned. Drop me a line on Twitter anytime at kdrive88 or check out firstlinepicks.com. Have a great weekend and best of luck with your bets.